Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to As a Woman, Fertility Hormones and Beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I am a board-certified OBGYN and fertility physician and also co-founder of Fora Fertility in Austin, Texas. Each week on this podcast, I discuss health and fertility and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community of collaboration that amplifies others as a woman. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome back to the As A Woman podcast. Today we are doing one of my favorite episodes and this is a fertility Q&A. So I have the voicemail where you can call and leave your own question on the As A Woman voicemail. This is a great way to get your questions answered because Instagram sometimes gets flooded and the voicemail can just get a lot more attention. So if you would like to be featured in a future episode, you can call 657-229-3672. Again, that is 657 657- 229-3672. Leave your voicemail. You don't have to leave your name if you don't want to, but ask away and get your questions answered. If you are not the voicemail leaving type, you can also ask questions Mondays on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD. On Instagram, I will answer some questions there. I will answer some questions in our weekly for fertility sake Q&A at the end of the podcast and in the newsletter. So if you've not signed up for the newsletter, you are missing out. The newsletter is really wonderful. You will love it. You can go to nataliecrawfordmd.com slash newsletter. We have recipes, my favorite things, fertility in the news, answering those questions, and just overall updates. So don't miss out. All right. Well, time to dive in to your questions. So let's get started. Hello, Dr. Crawford. My HSG demonstrated bilateral patent hydrofalpinks with greater dilation on the right compared to the left. So my Reproductive endocrinologist is recommending to not have surgery because the tubes are patent and I'm at at the point where I'm considering IVF. What are your thoughts about having patent hydrofalpings and not having surgery? And is there any studies showing decreased IVF success rates due to the embryotoxic nature of the fluid from the hydrofalpings? I would greatly appreciate your input. Thank you. All right. Well, this is a really interesting question and honestly leads me to be curious about the diagnosis. So a hydrosalpinx is a dilated fallopian tube. Truly, most of these are going to be distally dilated, which means at the end of the tube, the distal end is blocked. There is dilation and then fluid in the middle, and it is open to the uterine cavity, And you know that because when you did the HSG test, water or dye went into the uterine cavity and then moved into the fallopian tubes. So tubes that are proximately blocked or occluded might have a hydrosalpinx. They are not patent at the end or patent to the uterine cavity. So that's a little bit different. So I think clarity and what's going on is really important because it is unusual to have a hydrosalpinx, a dilated fallopian tube with water with a true patent tube, meaning the end of the tube is open to the abdominal cavity. Because why is it dilated? That's 
really strange. If it is, I would still argue that's a non-functional tube. It is increasing fluid. It needs to come out. And studies have shown that abnormal tubal pathology, even if it's not a distally end blocked hydrosalpinx, still counts with a decrease in pregnancy rates. If, however, you have a hydrosalpinx, a dilated fallopian tube, and there's proximal occlusion or it's not patent to the uterus, think the tube's not connected to the uterus so that toxic fluid water cannot drip into the uterus, then you actually can leave it in place. You don't take it out. And in some patients who have really bad anatomy or terrible disease like endometriosis, sometimes it's very hard to take out their fallopian tubes and we actually go in and disconnect the tube from that uterine cornua so that fluid can't get in. However, in the presence of a dilated fallopian tube, clear studies have shown decrease in success rates with pregnancy, okay? So first, big analysis, more than 6,000 cycles. This was published in the 90s, y'all. 11 different studies combined looked at a pregnancy rate with a decrease of 50% if you put an embryo inside when there was a dilated fallopian tube and a miscarriage rate of two to three times higher if you put an embryo in with a dilated fallopian tube. There is just absolutely no way you want to risk those numbers. Now, I also think it's really important to note timing here. So personally, if I find somebody has a hydrosalpinx or two, I do not take out the tubes before IVF. If we think about IVF, in vitro fertilization, being the act of getting the eggs to grow and taking them out and fertilizing them and making embryos, yeah, then we're just doing that and freezing them. Then go and take out the tubes or tube and then do an embryo transfer. If you're trying to do a fresh cycle, fresh transfer, embryos aren't being frozen, different ball game would need to take the tube out first. But the reason why is that hypothetically and in some studies taking out the fallopian tube can change the blood supply to the ovary. And although it does look like that may recover over time, it's going to take time and you probably do not want to have a significant amount of time from getting a tube out until you do your stimulation cycle. So our preference and the pretty common standard of practice now would be get eggs out first, make embryos, then get tubes out, then do an embryo transfer. The other thing here is like, was this not a real hydrosalpinx? Was this a soft call? Was this a radiologist who doesn't really know what they're looking at? Was it a normal fallopian tube just based on the angle? And so I am questioning if the diagnosis matches the advice and I might ask a few more questions here. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperatures starting to warm up, I'm so excited that summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan. It's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W. When you use our code AAW, that's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash AAW and click get started. Then use the code AAW at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. 
The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune, and luckily I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. Hi, Natalie. My name's Megan, and my husband was recently diagnosed with 0% motility and low sperm counts. And we're still trying to find answers, um, seeing if it's a combination of his blood pressure medications. But everything I am finding basically says there's no hope of increasing from zero. Uh, have you ever seen any patients improve their scores from zero enough to be able to do like IUI or something? Um, thank you so much. Bye. All right. First of all, I'm so sorry you're going through this. Sperm stuff is just hard and it's really hard to be a support person of your partner who might be taking some blame. So just saying, first of all, infertility takes two. This is both of you guys. Now, a lot of different things can cause no motility and there's also absolutely no motility and virtually no motility. And those things are actually different. Very first thing I would do if it hasn't been done is repeat a semen analysis. Top cause is delayed ejaculation. Like it's been more than seven days from the last time there was ejaculation. The sperm have died and have built up in the ejaculatory tract. And so what we're seeing is just dead sperm. So number one, I would say clean the pipes, do a collection after just two to three days of abstinence and see if you get the same thing. Now, again, are there really no moving sperm? And so if this is coming to my lab and we got a read of zero, I would have my lab actually look with their eyeballs under a microscope and see, like, do I see anything moving or twitching or is it really, really zero? There are things that can permanently cause sperm not to move and things that can temporarily cause sperm not to move. So remember that sperm is created over the course of 72 days in the testes. The testes are magic. They make sperm poof, brand new sperm. Then it takes the sperm 18 days to get out the ejaculatory duct system. So if something is going wrong in that sperm creation process or in the past three months, that can severely damage the ability of that sperm to form appropriately with the tail and everything it's needed. So some things that we might think about would be like a severe infection, bad exposure to certain toxins, maybe then also certain like general tract infections potentially, or if somebody's had prior testicular surgery, or you had undescended testes as a child and that got moved down, that might've damaged the testicular structure and made it difficult for sperm to be processed correctly. Things like anabolic steroids, testosterone use, marijuana, cocaine, and even some herbs can cause decreased motility and sperm count. And having varicoceles or a lot of heat to the testes can decrease motility as well. So that is going to be kind of the overall basic thought. Then there's more things when you're really talking about zero sperm in the sample are moving. You can have genetic things. The cilia and the tail may not be formed correctly. 
called Cartagener syndrome. So these really rare things you might not know about and also certain genetic things that your doctor would look for. So variety of different things can cause this. And what we're really trying to find out is are the sperm permanently or temporarily not moving? Can this be improved by certain treatments? Is there any use to going to the testes to getting sperm like in a tessie, which is a sperm extraction procedure? And if you really have very, very low motility, I'm going to be honest, I'm not talking about IUI with any patients. We are trying to get sperm viable for IVF, and that should be our goal. In reality, having no motility happens about one out of every 5,000 semen analysis samples, so that's not very common. We do see poor results even with IVF, even when you do ICSI meaning when I take a sperm and put it in an egg, if it is really not moving, this is going to be one of the top causes of really not having good fertilization or pregnancy rates. And a lot of that is because when they're selecting a sperm in the lab, it is hard to know what is alive and what is dead, like what's viable or what's not, because it's very common that not all sperm are truly going to be moving. So in short, I'm so sorry you're going through this. Number one, repeat an analysis. Number two, if we still have no motility, big investigation into why. Number three, the goal here is going to be getting some modal sperm for IVF. This might take medications, lifestyle changes, sperm extraction procedures, and I would highly anticipate that a reproductive urologist is going to be a member of your care team as well. Hi, Dr. Crawford. I was wondering, does embryo grading matter if we are doing PGTA testing? Our doctor has told us that it's more of a beauty contest, but I was curious to see what your perspective was. Thank you. I really love this question. So embryo grading, this is a human being who looks under the microscope and does judge how pretty the embryo is. So beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Your doctor is absolutely right here. Now, does grading matter? Well, before we had genetic testing, grading mattered a lot. Once we have the advent of genetic testing, grading really doesn't help us quite as much. And I'm going to give you some numbers to support this. First, though, I want to tell you a little bit about grading. When we're grading embryos, you are usually seeing a system that is a number and two letters. 4AA, 5AB, 4CC. All right, but what do all those things mean? The first number is the number of a size of expansion. So typically what you're going to see at a blastocyst stage are going to be fours and five. Sixes are hatching out of their shell. Threes are relatively still compacted. If you're getting embryos to the blastocyst stage and you're going to be doing genetic testing, you're getting them to fours and fives. Then you have a letter and the first letter is going to be the inner cell mass, what we consider the embryo or what's going to become the baby. And then the second letter is the placenta or the trophectoderm. So these two letters I always say are like school where B is average and A is above average and C is poor. And the first letter again is the embryo and the second letter is the placenta. So when we look at these, we are thinking A's and B's are all good and that is what we're going by. Number one, if you're doing genetic testing, you're not gonna see C's on your paperwork or it'd be extremely rare. Most embryos that get a C level are too disorganized to really get a biopsy sample. When you take a biopsy of these embryos, they have to be in a really nice expanded blast state. They have to have the placenta or the trophectoderm clearly separated from the inner cell mass and you have to be able to get a few cells. So a highly disorganized or fragmented embryo, hard to biopsy. So 
if you're looking at your report and you have both genetics and embryo morphology, you're not going to have a lot of C's. Okay. Everybody will always say a lot of ugly embryos have become beautiful children, and I tell patients that all the time as well. If you're not doing genetic testing, morphology does help you because the more morphologically good it is, the higher the chance it's genetically normal. So if you have your AA embryos and then your BB embryos, they have more of a 20 to 40% chance of being genetically normal. And then your ABs or your BAs, they have a higher chance, 45 to 50%. So we do see higher chance of being normal if they are better on a grading scale. Now that said, does that matter? Once we know that they are normal, the live birth rate is almost the same. So for all of these, if it's AA, AB, BA, or BB, we are looking at live birth rates between 55 to 75%. So the variations are really not statistically significant between these numbers. So your doctor is absolutely right when it comes to They have the same chance of really working. And if we don't have genetic testing, are we going to use morphology? Yes, absolutely. If we have genetic testing results, do we feel inclined to use it? Not as strongly. Personally, what do I do? If you say you want the best embryo, then we will pick the genetically normal embryo that grades the highest on the morphological scale. If you have both sexes of embryos, male and female, and you want the best male or the best female, then we'll go down that road. If you have a sex preference and it's the worst embryo, but you want to transfer it, absolutely, it's genetically normal. We are going to give it a chance. It's more probable to become a baby than not. Last thing to say here is just day of biopsy when it comes to embryo grading. Day five embryos ran the race on time, right? They got there when they were supposed to. Day six embryos got to day five on day six. So you will always see a lab preferentially choose a day five embryo over a day six embryo. So the way I think about it, take my day five embryos, rank the genetically normal ones based on morphology. That's category A. Those are your top slots. Then your day six embryos, take the normal ones, rank them on morphology, and that is your tier two. They are both great embryos, but day fives got there when they were supposed to, and so they automatically go front of the line. Okay, hope that helps you understand embryo grading and genetics a little bit more. Hi, Dr. Crawford. This is Erin Busby, and I'm in Salina, Texas, and I'm calling about a question I have for a friend who has had five miscarriages. Some have been just getting pregnant on her own, and then a couple have been through IVF with genetically normal embryos. And I was curious, I listened to one of your podcasts recently that mentioned uh, the impact of inflammation on your potential miscarriages or potentially the impact they had. So I was just wondering if you had any recommendations on testing that people could get to determine if that might be the case and what they can do about it. Um, And that is my question. Thank you. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? but women belong in scientific research. They're essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual Multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin to assess its efficacy and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43%, and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No life shady business. 
Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. You are such a good friend, I just want to say, and I love that your friend has opened up her heart and her vulnerability to feel comfortable sharing because all of this is really hard. If you're new here, what she's alluding to is the fact that I had many miscarriages before I had my two amazing children. So I had three losses and then an ectopic pregnancy. And to be fair, this was during a time period of my life where I was so not healthy because I was not sleeping. I was stressed. I was a resident and a fellow. I had these terrible hours. I didn't eat as healthy as I could. I often would go long stretches of not eating. And then I would eat a ton and I would eat whatever was in front of me if I was working. And there'd be periods where I'd gain weight and lose weight and couldn't consistently really just prioritize my health, even though I really desperately wanted to be a mom. And lo and behold, After the ectopic pregnancy, I got methotrexate and had to take a long period of time off. You have to wait three months. And we really decided to do a lot in that time period about stopping. I was already vegetarian, but then I went and I stopped eating any processed foods, cut back on sugar, stopped drinking, stopped being exposed to certain chemicals, looked at our kitchen and got rid of things, started prioritizing sleep and not staying up as late and stopped, you know, looking at screens at night and really just changed a lot. And I think ultimately some of those changes really did help me get pregnant. The short answer to your question is there's no good test for inflammation. And every physician will tell you this because even though it is a common through point in so many different chronic diseases, and I believe has a lot of connection between autoimmune disease, recurrent miscarriage, chronic inflammation, and a lot of our gynecologic disorders like PCOS and endometriosis, all have very inflammatory components. There's not good tests for that. They're just very nonspecific. So nobody's going to go run a blood test on this. That being said, fixing inflammation is very, very personal. So that is really focusing on your health, healing your gut health. That's not just like a fake word. That's a real thing. So trying to help yourself by putting in and on your body things that are treating your body kindly, not drinking alcohol, not smoking cigarettes, not using marijuana, getting eight hours of sleep per night. Like sleep is number one because sleep is when your body heals. It's when you have cellular repair. And if you're not sleeping, your body's not healing, period, the end. Trying to take some supplements that can have antioxidants in addition to your prenatal. Trying to find that thing that can decrease your stress, whether that is yoga, walks outside with the birds, meditation, acupuncture, therapy, reading a good like old-fashioned book. I don't care what it is. Something helps you and you need to lean into that. I usually say 30 minutes a day of you time. Mild exercise is like wonderful for your body. I mean, I don't really think this is the time for hardcore HIIT workouts because if you're really trying to make these muscle gains or do high intensity, you're you're breaking things down and that does cause inflammation. So I say easier exercise that's non-inflammatory. 
and looking at all these toxins in the world around you, we live in a very, very inflammatory world. And I think a lot of these chronic diseases, I personally think a lot of our unexplained pregnancy loss can be connected from some of this chronic inflammation. And when you come in and you focus on that and decreasing it, it really can help you. Last thing is I talk about this a ton in the Enhance Your Natural Fertility course about what you can do and how you can do this and real life things. So if that is something anybody is interested in, you can go to the website nataliecrawfordmd.com and learn more about the course. Hi, Dr. Crawford. My question is, what role do autoimmune disorders play in fertility um, and getting pregnant? I have celiac disease and have been managing it for the past 15 years with a somewhat regular gluten-free diet. I was also recently diagnosed with hypothyroidism and have been managing that with medication. I'm on some wait lists for fertility centers here in my area, but they said it could be up to six months until I actually get an appointment to see someone. So I really appreciate you answering questions and all the information that you share. Take care. Well, I did put these questions back to back because I think they are really related. So one of the hallmarks of a lot of autoimmune disease is that when the body attacks itself, that's what an autoimmune disease is, your body starts to recognize something normal as abnormal and it sends out inflammatory markers to try to attack it. And this inherently causes inflammation. That's why in addition to finding a lot of these antibodies, sometimes people get diagnosed with this when they have high levels of inflammation or some of those very non-specific labs that we mentioned elevated. So when we think about autoimmune disease, there's definitely some known complications. So one is going to be recurrent miscarriages. So we definitely have data here. Certain autoimmune diseases impact recurrent miscarriage. So thyroid disease and autoimmune clotting disorders, those are well known. Then we have premature ovarian failure going into early menopause. Also things like thyroid disease, adrenal disease, are associated with higher risk of going in to early menopause. Now, the thing that we know is that a lot of these autoimmune diseases occur together. So if you have celiac, you have a higher risk of having hypothyroidism, have a higher risk of having endometriosis and a litany of other autoimmune diseases. And because of these close associations together, we do see that people overall who have autoimmune disease have a higher general risk of infertility. The reality is it probably does matter what exactly you have, and honestly, how well controlled it is. Meaning you have celiac disease, which you're avoiding gluten, therefore you're living a relatively low inflammatory lifestyle. That's going to be a lot better than if you're eating gluten and your body's constantly under attack. Or you have Hashimoto's, but you're not taking any medication. So your body is just attacking that thyroid gland versus you are taking your Synthroid, shutting down your thyroid, replacing your thyroid hormone, and then trying to make lifestyle modifications where you can. I think that inflammation is the connecting thread, again, through all autoimmune diseases and why we see so much overlap with those and certain infertility conditions. So the advice is still the same, to focus in on decreasing inflammation on your life, controlling your disease where you can, and honestly staying on top of your medical care. Because if you're at risk for other things, you want to make sure that you're getting those things evaluated so you know what you have and you know you can get treatment. Just want to say, by no means does this mean that people who have autoimmune disease can't get pregnant. I don't want you to think that. That is not the case. It just might mean it potentially is a contributing factor to why things are harder for you. I think that a lot of unexplained infertility or unexplained pregnancy loss, as I already said, might have an inflammatory or an autoimmune component that we just don't have a test to diagnose quite yet. And this is why when you do IVF and you take eggs and sperm and put them together in the lab and grow embryos in the lab, you are removing them from 
the fallopian tube, which is a very sensitive environment, and essentially decreasing the inflammation that they are exposed to at their most vulnerable time. Hi, Dr. Crawford. I've listened to a bunch of your episodes, and you always mention getting rid of toxins such as plastic. I was wondering, does silicone count as a plastic? And if not, are we able to put that in the dishwasher or the microwave and have it heat up? All right. Thank you so much. All right. This is a really good question because if you're going to go away from plastics, what other options do you have? So silicone overall is a much more stable compound than most of the plastics that we know. What that means is it doesn't break down as easily when exposed to heat and therefore doesn't leach into your food like plastics do. The question is, does it at all? I think we definitely know plastics are much, much worse. So silicone is going to be a safer alternative versus using plastics. So that's definitely an improvement. Is it overall safe? I think that data honestly hasn't been done. So we do know that silicone is not completely inert. It can um, break down and leach into food a little bit. Does it disrupt hormones? Does it cause cancer? Does it impact your fertility? There's a lot of that that we really do not know. And let's remember that silicone is not just in silicone baking ingredients, but you also have silicones in certain products like skincare products and cosmetics. So I think this is honestly one where the data is not 100% out. I would not personally, like I don't use it to bake goods on like the silicone baking cups or using it in the microwave. I use parchment paper instead personally but I think that you know using a silicone spatula especially when things aren't being heated like if you're mixing something I think that has a fine situation because it's not getting heated I would prefer to use something that is more inert if you're using like stainless steel is a great option of cookware but definitely use that over your plastic so if you're at a house and you've got you know a plastic option or a silicone option the silicone would be a better choice for sure but if you have the option for stainless steel that would be a better choice for you. All right, and then our last question for this episode. Again, if you would like to call in and leave a voicemail for me to answer in a future episode, it is 657-229-3672. Again, 657-229-3672. Hi, Dr. Natalie. My name is Carmen. I have called once before asking you a question about my cancer journey and fertility and loop runs. Today, my question is about anemia. I just listened to your plant-based episode, and I was going back over my blood work, and I was anemic before I started chemo. I became very anemic during chemo, and now my anemia is getting a little bit better, but because I was anemic before, I wonder if, you know, I'll ever get back into the normal range. I know people say to eat red meat when you're anemic. What are your thoughts on that? Thank you very much. All right, this is a great random health question to end on. Anemia is when your body doesn't make enough red blood cells. Your red blood cells carry oxygen, and the oxygen binds to heme, which is a component of iron that is in your red blood cells. So yes, iron is a component. Now, it's important to know that that's not the only type of anemia, iron deficiency anemia, other things can cause anemia too, like a deficiency of folic acid, for example. And then medical conditions can contribute to anemia. Chemotherapy is a huge one, right? Because you're killing rapidly dividing cells, including red blood cells. And then things like kidney disease or other chronic illnesses can also decrease your body's ability to make red blood cells. People are also anemic from losing blood, right? And blood loss anemia tends to be an iron deficiency anemia and taking in enough iron is gonna be important to not be anemic. So if you have heavy periods or you undergo a major surgery or have blood loss, you're gonna hear your doctor come in and tell you to take iron. Now, 
there is this huge thing about red meat being the only source of iron. And sometimes it really boggles my mind. And I think that the food industry has just done a good job with this one. If we want to think about what foods have iron in them, what are iron rich foods? So some common sources of plant-based iron that we don't always talk about. One is going to be spinach. Of course, you hear about leafy greens a lot. We have nuts like cashews. Lentils have iron in them. Tofu has iron in them. Chickpeas have iron in them. And then you have all your grains because grains are fortified with iron in them as well. So pastas, breads, you've got nuts, oats, tofu, dark leafy green vegetables, those legumes. It's a lot of different sources. I eat a ton of those things every single day. And if you do eat meat, yes, you do have your red meats have more iron than other types of meat, but you can also get it from poultry and from fish, shellfish, or eggs. All right. And one important thing about iron that people don't really talk about is that you actually need vitamin C to help absorb iron. They really go together. So don't forget those vitamin C rich fruits and vegetables or take a vitamin C supplement or multivitamin. So we've got citrus, berries, tomatoes, sweet potatoes, broccoli, cabbage, and your dark leafy greens. And this is why things like spinach and broccoli are so good because they have both iron and vitamin C in them. So you're in taking the iron with a food that also has a nutrient that allows it to be absorbed and utilized better. So you can definitely have a diet that is rich in fruits and vegetables and legumes and beans and nuts and get plenty of iron. Y'all, I do not take an iron supplement and I haven't eaten meat since 2009. That's a super long time. And I am not anemic and nor have I ever been anemic. In fact, I am less anemic than most people I know who eat meat. And I eat a lot of leafy greens and fruits and veggies. So I just want to dispel that myth. And like, I can't even count how many times somebody has told me, oh, you need to eat meat or you're going to be anemic. So that's just not the case. The one thing you need to know if you are a vegan, please make sure you take vitamin B12. B12 is typically found most often in animal product foods. It is harder to find replaced in other things. You can find a little bit of natural B12 sources in things like nutritional yeast, also in some seaweeds. And now we are seeing it supplemented in different types of plant-based milks or in a certain type of plant-based meats. But if you are a vegan, you do not consume any animal-based products, make sure you are consuming enough vitamin B12 because that can cause an anemia. All right, friends. Well, I hope you enjoyed this Q&A episode. These are honestly some of my favorite. So please call and ask the voicemail so we can get to do another one. 657-229-3672. Again, 657-229-3672. Call the voicemail, leave your question. You do not have to leave your name. If you're not the voicemail type, you can leave a question on Instagram on Mondays at Natalie Crawford MD. Every Monday we'll go through the questions. Some of them will be saved for future podcast episodes. Some of them will be answered in the email and some of them are going to be answered right there on Instagram. So feel free to ask. And don't forget the newsletter, sign up nataliecrawfordmd.com slash newsletter if you are interested in getting future emails, which will include recipes, questions, fertility in the news, and my favorite things. Thanks, friends. Thank you all for listening to As A Woman. It would mean so much if you could rate, review, and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every Sunday. I hope you learned something new, and I hope you share it with someone in your life. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD and check out the YouTube channel Natalie Crawford MD. 
If you're interested in becoming a patient, you can also follow Fora Fertility. I'm so thrilled to have you here, part of the community that amplifies others as a woman.